I want to welcome all of our visitors, all of our guests, longtime attenders, members. I'm so glad that you're here. And if this is your first or second week here at Covenant Church, I want to invite you to fill out a brown card at the back, put it into the the black basket, take a mug, and we'll get in touch with you. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Ben Espinoza. I serve as a pastor here at Covenant Church. And this morning I wanted to take just a few moments to talk a little bit about our mission and our vision for Covenant Church. Our mission is very, very simple. It's to know Jesus and to make him known. And this drives every single thing that we do. But how do we live out this mission and this vision? Through four key practices. Number one, the first is preaching the gospel, meaning every single Sunday you come here, you're going to hear a message that centers on what God has done in Christ Jesus But we also strive to be messengers of the gospel wherever we go during the week. The second key practice that we do is we cultivate worship. We worship God through song on Sunday and with our lives throughout the entire week. The third key practice is that we create community. When you come to Covenant Church, you're going to be greeted by a very rich community that loves Jesus. But we also seek to depend on one another for spiritual enrichment and encouragement throughout the week. And lastly, we seek to live on mission. As we go about our days, Monday through Saturday and Sunday, we seek to point the way to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ by our words and with our deeds. This is what drives us here at Covenant Church, to know Jesus and to make him known. Well, this morning we're going to be wrapping up our Advent series called Glory Revealed, where we've been looking at how the birth of Jesus reveals the glory of God the Father. And this morning, we're going to be going through the first chapter of John's Gospel. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me there. We've talked a little bit about what glory means. And just to recap, I've said that glory means a few different things in Scripture. It means weight, as if you can feel the weight of somebody's presence just when you're around them. In other cases, it means brilliance or luminance, as if somebody blinds you by the powerful brilliance of their presence. And in the ancient world, it also meant that there were certain tales hovering around culture about you. And it most often applied to kings who would return from the fields of battle after a most glorious victory. And when you put it all together, you arrive at the same conclusion that St. Augustine did in the 4th century. That glory means brilliant celebrity with praise. Now we've been looking at how the glory of God has been revealed all throughout the birth of Jesus in a variety of ways. But our passage this morning really cuts to the core of how the glory of God is revealed in the coming of the Messiah, the Christmas event. So before we get to our passage this morning, I'd ask that you pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can be together, sing together, and worship together. Right now, I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to the different truths that you want us to hear from your word this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the Gospel of John is a bit of an odd gospel. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic Gospels. Synop- synoptic means similar. But John stands apart from the other Gospels for a variety of reasons. But the main reason is that the main purpose of the Gospel of John is to point to Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God. And many of the verses that you see in great theological works devoted to proving that Jesus is the Christ, the coming Messiah, come from the book of John. 
And the verses that we're going to look at today don't really make a traditional Christmas sermon. There's no wise men, there's no Mary, no Joseph, no barnyard animals, and there's no greedy innkeeper, which isn't even biblical um, in the first place. You can challenge me on that if you want. But what John does is something just a little more glorious. He gives us a divine genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you look at Matthew and if you look at Luke, they give human genealogies of Jesus in order to show that he's of the lineage of David and heir to the Davidic throne. But John goes behind the scenes of everything that we see in Scripture in order to fully reveal the glory of God. He writes this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So right off the bat, John makes an interesting assertion here. He says that the word of God was with God in the beginning, and that the word of of God is God himself. Now we know from the context that the word here, the word is Jesus Christ. Now whereas Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham, and Luke traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam, John begins with God himself. He wants to give a divine genealogy of who Jesus is. But John doesn't say that Jesus is the Son of God just yet. Instead, he calls Jesus something a little deeper, a little richer, and that's the Word. And you can draw your own conclusions from that. But here's what it means. The Greek word for word is lagos. And this was a very specific term used in Greek philosophy to denote the cosmic key to everything in the universe. In Greek philosophy, the Lagos represented the divine reason for life itself. The one who holds the entire universe together and is the key to all wisdom. So John is using these first few verses here in his gospel in order to scratch a cultural itch. Because if you can tangibly show the Greeks that Jesus is the Lagos himself, then you hold the key to reaching an entire culture for Christ. So there's almost a missionary impulse going on in the first few verses of John. And John also says that the word is the source of all life and all creation. And he says that the word is the source of light that outshines the darkness. So John straight up tells his audience that the word is a force for good, for the light. And that with his goodness will drive out all of the evil, the darkness. So he's using creation imagery to describe Jesus' power and his plan to save the world. In order to give you a glimpse into the glory of God and all of his fullness. He moves on to say this in verses 6 through 8. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And some thought that he was the Messiah himself. 
but John made it abundantly clear that his goal, his only goal in life, was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. So John functions as a herald for Christ, someone who was going before and announcing the way for the coming of the King. John goes on to say this, verses 9 through 11, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So John begins his gospel by saying that the word is the light and the creator of the world. And right here he says that his creation doesn't even recognize him. He says that Jesus lived among those who were his own people, the Jewish people. And yet they did not receive him. They rejected him. So here you have the divine word, the reason for all of life itself, who makes himself abundantly clear throughout the entirety of Scripture, as we saw last month. Sending John the Baptist to prepare the way. All the signs are there. And yet they reject him. And that's the story of the entire Old Testament. God's own people can even be his greatest enemies. And even though God has made himself clear in the Old Testament, people still didn't recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, even though all the signs pointed to him. But it goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So already right here, you can see John alluding to the Old Testament in some ways. He says that Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God. He says he was the creator. He says that his own have rejected him. But now he moves to give us the gospel, the good news, by saying that his gift of light and of love is for all people now. Israel has forfeit their right as God's chosen people, and he has opened up his kingdom for everybody. And John makes this very clear right here. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And this is the paradigm pre-Jesus and then post-Jesus. Pre-Jesus, Israel thought they had total possession of God. But the birth of Jesus signals that God has revealed himself to every single person on the planet, regardless of race or gender or any other identity marker. The word was with God. And God is for all people. But John goes a step further and says that this word, the divine creator of the universe, the key to everything, the Lagos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time that the God of the universe has become human. And through this marvelous incarnation, we have seen his glory revealed. And oftentimes when we think of glory, we often think of something otherworldly. But John says that God's glory is most evident in this act of him taking on the form of a human. And as I've been saying, part of how God reveals himself, reveals his glory, is by doing the opposite of what we're thinking The angel silences the old priest, Zechariah, but he opens up the mind of a 14-year-old girl named Mary. 
He brings down King Herod. He elevates humble Joseph. The lowly shepherds and the pagan astrologers are among the first to worship the newborn king when that honor is usually reserved for kings and ambassadors of great nations. To say that the divine creator of the universe became a man is scandalous stuff. It doesn't make sense to us. If the creator of everything we know has so much power, why would he bother becoming human? Why would he come as a baby? What's the point of all of that? I spoke in chapel here at uh, Bowling Green Christian Academy a couple weeks ago, and I asked the kids, you know, why did Jesus have to come as a baby when he could have come with angels and armies and fire and made himself very, very clear? And one of the kids was like, because he would look crazy if he came down with a bunch of angels. And that's partially true. It's not a bad answer. But I think there are a few main reasons why the Messiah had to take on human form. The first is that the Messiah needed to relate to us. He needed to experience every single thing that we experienced. And it says in the book of Hebrews, we have a high priest who experienced everything that we have so that he could serve as the high priest, the true sympathizer and mediator between us and the Father. And it's obvious, too, he needed to die for our sins. And there's no way he could have done that unless he came down from the heavenlies. But I think there's a truth that's implicit within this whole passage. You just might miss it if you don't look close enough. It's the fact that since Jesus Christ is the primary agent of all of creation, only he can reverse the curse and redeem the brokenness. By becoming a human, Jesus became a part of the world he created in order to fix it. It's the logos, the word, the key to the entire universe, implementing a great plan to restore and redeem everything. And John also says that God's glory is most evident in the coming of the Messiah because he brings grace and he brings truth. And generally in the church, we dichotomize the two. It's either grace or truth. Either you're a gracious person all the time or you're a truthful person all the time. And sometimes we like to exacerbate the dichotomy. But it says here that Jesus was full of both. And that's something that we in the church need to remember, that to be in Christ means to be full of grace and full of truth. And you see this all throughout the life of Jesus. He's gracious with those who need grace, and he's truthful with those who need truth. He loves the brokenhearted, and he brings down the proud. And that's also what we see in his birth. The lowly are elevated, and the proud are humbled. In Jesus, we see the fullness of God's glory because he's the personification of grace and truth. If you want to know the boundlessness of grace and the truth of God, you have to look to Jesus. And John goes on to say this. It says, John the Baptist testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace and the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. 
In other words, if you sincerely desire to know God, you need to know Jesus first. And John says that God revealed himself through the law, through Moses, but the fullness of God's glory and his grace and his truth is revealed in Jesus Christ. And when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate that the fullness of God's glory is made manifest in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We celebrate that in Christ, we can finally know God. And that's totally contrary to how we as humans think. For us, we want to try and reach our way toward God ourselves. We want to earn our way to heaven. We think this, that the more that we do for God, the more he will love us. But with Christianity, God has reached down to us and made himself known to us. Friends, we can't minimize the importance of this. When we come to celebrate together to celebrate Christmas this coming week, we're celebrating that God has met us where we're at. And we celebrate that God has revealed himself to us in the most magnificent way, full of grace and full of truth. And this morning as we wrap up our sermon series and prepare for Christmas and really wrap up 2015 as a whole, there's really only one point I want to make regarding this passage and how we really want to live our lives as individuals and as a church. It's this, that Jesus is the only hope for our world. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, duh, Ben, I know that. I didn't need to go to church to hear that. But I think it's a truth that we need to be reminded of quite often. Usually we keep our Christian lives and our regular lives separate. We go to church, we pray, we read scripture, we sing songs. Then we go leave to get to our real lives. We fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus only wants to save our souls. And he wants to stop there. But John has a greater vision, a grander vision to the extent of Jesus' salvific work. Since the entire creation has fallen, only Jesus can restore creation. That means he doesn't just want to save your soul. He wants to save everything. That means he cares about our lives, our work, our families, our neighborhoods, our society, our cultures. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christ like I believe in the Son. Not because I see it, but by it I can see everything else. Jesus Christ is the key to redeeming and restoring everything in the universe. And as I've mentioned the past few weeks, one of the hallmarks surrounding the birth of the Messiah is that you see this great reversal of the worldly order. The humble are exalted, the proud are humbled, and the marginalized in society are the first ones to see Jesus. What we see in the birth of the Messiah is a microcosm of God's greater mission to reverse the effects of the fall and restore this entire creation back to him. Christmas signals the great reversal where God says no more to everything evil. No more suffering, no more war, no more famine, no more hate, prejudice, or racism. And no more death. But what does that mean practically? It means everything that we do needs to point to Jesus. And that's our goal as a body of believers. Like I said, to know Jesus and to make him known. Everything we do at Covenant here is focused on this mission and vision. 
But each of us need to discern what it means to put Jesus first in our lives. I'll say this. It's important to go to church on a Sunday, but it's even more important to be the church on Monday. I think one of the reasons a lot of us love Christmas, apart from gifts and food and family, is that baby Jesus doesn't make any demands on us. He doesn't tell us to love our enemies, to seek the good of others, or sacrifice for the greater good. Baby Jesus doesn't tell us to forgive those who have wronged us. And baby Jesus doesn't tell us to pick up our cross and follow him. But we know better. We know that Jesus has said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's so full of grace and full of truth. But if you want to follow him and find true life, it's not going to be easy. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for a while. You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray. But you haven't, you haven't surrendered every single aspect of your life to Jesus yet. Maybe it's time to do that today. Or maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, and you're looking for something more. There's something missing. Jesus loves you and wants to save you and the world you live in. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. Because it is in the one and only Jesus Christ that God the Father has revealed the weight and the light and the power of his glory. Perhaps one of the more glorious manifestations of God's love is in Christ's death. And there's a reason that Christ tells us to remember his death, because in his death, we have life abundant and life eternal. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. And if you know Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come to the front. Take a piece of bread. Dip it into the cup. Remember how God has revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ. And if you need to come up here and pray, feel free to. Maybe there's something in your life that's replacing Jesus. Some idol that you worship in the place of him. Maybe you need to get right with God today. There's no better time to do that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was and is and is to come. Will you stand with me as we pray?